you can be seated. I will have you take your Bibles out and you can be opening them up to the book of Romans, to chapter 3 this morning. Who knows what tomorrow is? If you said Cindy's and my anniversary, you're right. Uh, If you said Halloween, you're right. And by the way, there's no connection between those first two. But hopefully, in this context this morning, and as Christians, as Reformed Christians especially, you know that October 31st is Reformation Day. That day that is uh, sort of the mark of the beginning of the Reformation. And as I like to do, uh, semi-regularly at least, this morning I want to take a break from our current sermon series here in Mark and remind you of something you know. I pray that you know this. I especially hope for those of you who are longtime members of Reading Reformed Fellowship that you know this because it is an emphasis of our church and of our preaching and of our teaching. Uh, But I hope that you, even if you are new to this church, that you know this. This is one one of the topics that were of such concern during the days of the Reformation and the days leading up to the Reformation, the, that men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and Beza and, and others, uh, in their effort to refocus the church and to see it brought back to where it should be, one of those great topics that the Reformers focused on, and several topics fit that category, the authority and the clarity and the sufficiency of the Scripture, certainly, the priesthood of believers, certainly. Of course, the five solas, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and for God's glory alone. And this one that we're going to focus on this morning, and that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, How many of you were here for the movie yesterday? I hope that you enjoyed that uh, focus on that doctrine yesterday. And we're going to hear it again today, and that's good for us to do uh, because it is such an important topic. It is a critical topic. And it's important for us, even those of us who who hear it, who know it, to be reminded of it. But um, there may be someone here this morning who's visiting. There may be someone watching Uh, online who has never heard this topic taught. And as we saw yesterday in the film that we watched, that is a very distinct possibility. Not so much here, but out there. Uh, Because there are a lot of churches who do not preach this topic, who have other things that are their focus, unfortunately. Because the Bible asks many questions. And it answers many questions. And one of the questions that the Bible answers, in fact, one of the most critical ones, is asked by the Old Testament figure Job. Way back in Job, chapter 9, verse 1 of the book of Job, he asks this monumental question. He says, how can man be right before God? 
And this is, that question is for us as fallen and sinful creatures, the most important question that we can consider. It is the most important issue that confronts us. But fortunately, God has given to us a book, 66 books, in order to answer that question. And since it is such an important question, and since the, the answer that Scripture gives is so God-glorifying, it is no surprise that the enemy of the church, our great enemy, has been intent on confusing that answer, the answer to that question. And that, again, is part of what we saw as we watched that film yesterday, is part of his attack on this doctrine, on this question and on the answer that it gives. But it's not new. He has been, the enemy, Satan, has been fighting against this, trying to confuse this question from back in the garden. Because the the confusion that he gives always begins with the question, has God really said? And that's continued throughout history. People who were confused about the answer that God has so clearly given to us in his word about the question, how can man be right before God? In Jesus' day, there were the Pharisees that said you have to do this and this and this and this in addition to believing. In Paul's day, it was the Judaizers who said roughly the same thing. In later centuries, the church... The Roman Catholic Church, particularly, also was found to be giving different answers to that question. In fact, the Protestant Reformation was carried out to a large degree over the different, quest- or the different answers to that question that were given in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Bible. Answers to the question, how can man be right before God? How can sinful man be right before a holy God? And today, the answer to that question is very confused as people go away from the Bible to try to answer it in other ways. Many evangelical churches and so many evangelical Christians have mistaken ideas about the answer to that question. Have you ever heard someone say or do you perhaps think that the gospel is that we stop sinning and make Jesus the Lord of our lives? Or, as we saw yesterday, that that the gospel is that God wants you to be wealthy, to never be sick, to get everything that you desire. If any of those are true, you need to hear Scripture speak to you this morning. And if you are not a Christian... You need to hear Scripture speak to you this morning on this subject. We've taught about it before. We preach about it regularly. But considering how important it is, again, it is important for us to be clear and so to be reminded of how God has answered this great question. How can man be right with God? And the answer is found in the scriptures through the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The reformers, by God's grace, clearly understood the importance of that in their time, and it's just as important in ours. Martin Luther 
said that it is the article on which the church stands or falls. John Calvin said that a church that does not have justification correctly understood and correctly preached is not even properly called a church. And he said justification, and Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher after him, echoed this, that justification is the hinge on which salvation turns. And this is not just a Reformed doctrine. It is, more importantly, a biblical doctrine. And, of course, we believe that Reformed doctrines are Reformed doctrines because they're biblical doctrines. And the things that we're going to talk about this morning are, again, arguably, not arguably, they are the most important things you will ever hear. They are the key to your salvation. Again, if you're a Christian, a great reminder of what God has done for you. And if you are not a Christian, the news that you need to hear. And we're going to hear it as we might expect from what is the foundational text in the New Testament on this subject. And that is found, no surprise, in the book of Romans in chapter 3. So if you haven't found Romans chapter 3, find it quickly and please stand together as we read a portion of God's word this morning. Romans chapter 3 is our text. We'll be reading verses 21 through 31 and speaking on that topic, on that passage. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing upon this time of rejoicing in this great teaching of your word. We pray, Father, that you would take these words and that you would use them in the lives of every person here this morning in order that they may glorify you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We ask this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. So this morning we are going to look at the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We don't have time to delve into every phrase of every verse here this morning, but we are going to look at the great doctrine that it teaches. And we're going to look at several aspects of it. There's a 
partial outline. You'll need to fill in the blanks in the outline as we go along. And we're going to start in our look at justification by looking at the meaning of it. The meaning of it. What is it? If we're going to understand it, if it is so important, we have to first understand what it is. What is justification? What does it mean to be justified? The word itself is often used in our world today in a little different sense. It's often used in the sense of a a rationale or a a defense for some action or some belief. Uh, Are you justified in doing that? Something like that. That's not the way that it's used in Scripture. It's a word that comes from the world of the law of legal proceedings. Deuteronomy 25.1 speaks of men in a dispute who would come together before a judge and that the judge, after hearing the case, will pronounce a verdict in the case. If If he is a just and a fair judge, he will condemn the guilty and he will acquit or justify the innocent. He will declare the innocent to be innocent. And in a legally binding sense. And that pronouncement of innocence on the innocent party, that pronouncement of a verdict of non-guilty, that is the meaning of justification. In fact, Deuteronomy 25.1 uses that language. It says that they, that is the judges, they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. So it is one of two actions that can be done when, when evaluating the, uh, the uh, guilt of someone. Either they are justified or they are condemned. And to be justified before God is to be declared to be righteous by God before God. Again, it's a legal term. It is a forensic action. It is a declaration that God makes, a declaration of innocence, a statement of standing. And that's crucially important to understand. And it may seem like straining at gnats, but it's not. Because we sometimes hear that to be justified or to justify someone means to make them righteous. And it does not mean that. It does not mean to make them righteous. It means, as we just have seen, to declare them righteous, to declare them innocent, to declare them right. And there's a huge difference there, isn't there? The opposite of being justified is being condemned. And both of those, as we've seen, are declarations that are made. They're both about someone, saying something about someone, about you, making a declaration concerning you. A judge condemns a prisoner by a statement. He renders a verdict. A declaration of standing in regard to the law. Justification is the same. In regard to God's law, where do you stand? Let me make this clear in a little different approach here. In the wonderful gift that we call salvation, there are different aspects of salvation They basically fall into two categories. The first is that there are things that are done to us when we are saved. We are born again. We are regenerated. 
That is something that happens in here. The Spirit works in us. He brings our dead spirit, as it were, to life. He takes out, the Scripture says, a heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. We are a new creature. That's done to us. And then through our Christian life, we are sanctified by that same Holy Spirit. That is done in here. It is the Holy Spirit working in us to make us more holy, to make us more like Christ. That's, both of those are part of your salvation, and that's one aspect, things that are done to you. There's another aspect, and those are things that are done for you, things that are done on your behalf. We are adopted. When we are saved, we are adopted by God. He counts us as his children. And justification falls into that second category. It is something that is done for us. It is something that is done about us, not to us. If justification, as some say, is to make us righteous, then that would be something that is being done to us, like sanctification. And sanctification is us being made righteous, but justification isn't. Justification is a verdict pronounced in our case by God in the court of heaven, and that verdict is innocent or not guilty. So in justification, God declares the believing sinner righteous in his sight. That's what justification is. So we have that foundation. We can move on from that. That's the meaning of justification, that God declares you to be righteous. Why is the second question as we look at the need for it. Why is that so important for us? Why do I need to be justified? Well, let me, I'll just have Paul answer that, and he answers it in a way that leaves no doubt. The passage that we just read this morning comes in the middle of a larger consideration of, of man and of his situation. And Paul begins the book of Romans right after his introduction by laying out the case that everyone is guilty before God. So we talked about in Deuteronomy that that someone comes before a judge being accused of something. That's what Paul is talking about in the passages leading up to this one. We are not innocent. We are guilty. That's what Paul in the first three chapters of Romans leading up to where we're at, that's what Paul talks about. And he makes it very clear that Jews are guilty, Gentiles are guilty. We are all guilty. It's a very convincing case. In Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.8, Paul lays this out in absolutely no uncertain terms. In verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3, Paul then summarizes that argument by presenting a litany of Old Testament passages that he just strings together that speak to the sinfulness of men. And verse 10, as you know, gets to the very heart of it. It comes from Psalm 14. In verse 10, Paul says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. He says that no one understands, no one seeks for God. And later he says, no one does good, not even one. Not you, not me. Not Paul, no one. In fact, look at verse 23. Paul says, For all 
have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have gone astray, Isaiah 53 says. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, the prophet says. You see, God is the judge. He is the one who makes the determination. And every single person who has ever lived and who will ever live will stand before this judge and be judged. And the judge, the one that God has set to be the judge, and that is his son Jesus Christ, Paul said, Christ will make a declaration on the last day, a verdict. Not a different verdict based on how you've done throughout your life, but a verdict based ultimately on Christ and on your position in Christ or outside of Christ. But that verdict will be one of two. It will be guilty or it will be righteous. And the righteous will live forever in the bliss of heaven. And the unrighteous will suffer eternal punishment in a physical, literal hell. But God's word just said, didn't it, that there is no one righteous. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? That is the problem. Our our need to be acquitted by God, by his own legal pronouncement, is precisely because we cannot justify ourselves. If we try to stand before God on our own, the Bible says that our righteousness, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Not our mistakes, not our sin. Even the best we can do is nowhere near good enough. Now, some people try it. You've heard them. Man is basically good. Or anyway, I'm better than other people. We can try our best. We can do the best that we can. But even if we could do far and away more than how we do, even if we could be world religious leaders, even if we could make great strides for peace in the world, feeding the hungry, standing up for the weak, it still wouldn't be enough. It still would not be close to being enough. And why is that? Well, the Bible just told us. Despite what we think about ourselves, despite what some of the people on the movie we watched yesterday think about themselves, the truth is that no one is righteous. Not perfectly. And that's what it takes to be righteous in God's sight is to be perfect. And so no one has what it takes to be righteous enough to call themselves righteous. No one is righteous enough to be able to justify themselves before God. Because to justify yourself before God, you must be perfect always. We can't be saved by looking at God's law and saying, okay, I'll keep that because we can't keep it. In fact, right before the passage that we read this morning in verse 19, Paul says that the law stops the mouth of everyone so that the whole world may be held accountable to God. And why is that? Verse 20 says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge 
of sin. We are law breakers, every one of us. And so that can't be, justification can't be based on what you do because you don't do. And so, and you have to understand this if you're to understand what it means to become a Christian is that Christianity is not moralism. Christianity is not do better. Christianity is not here are the principles for you to do better, now go and do better. And becoming a Christian does not mean living a good life. It does not mean making a resolution to live better. Even if to some degree you are able to keep that resolution. It doesn't mean to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and to walk according to a moral standard, even the moral standard in God's word. Because you cannot be and you cannot be good enough to become a Christian. Rather, you have to recognize that you will never be good enough on your own to make God accept you. But that's okay. Because that is the very type of person that God justifies. Wicked people. Romans 4 or 5 says that he justifies the ungodly. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said that it's not the well person who needs a doctor, but the sick. And that I came, he said, not to call the righteous, those who think they're righteous, but sinners to repentance. So our need to be justified, our need to be declared not guilty by God through something that God does is is manifest to us here, is demonstrated by God's own word. Our need to be justified or declared righteous is found in the fact that we are not righteous. That's the need for it. Let's look at the source of it. Because it's also manifest by God's word that he does justify sinners. He does declare them to be righteous. We who have sinned and continue to sin against him. He pronounces them righteous. Where does that come from? What's the source of that? Why does God do that? What is is in us? What have we done? What virtue resides there? What beauty, what loveliness resides in us that motivates God to declare us righteous? What does God see in you that prompts him to declare you righteous? You know the answer. Nothing. There is nothing in you. You have not done, we have not done anything good that God should look on us with favor. There is none righteous, not even one. We do not have any goodness in us, any virtue in us that would cause God to look on us with favor. There is no residual goodness in us. Man is not basically good. He is not simply a good person who's the product of a bad upbringing or a bad environment or bad genes. He is a product of a bad nature, a fallen nature. That's what we were and that's what we, we are. And unless God acts on our behalf, that's what we will remain. 
Jeremiah 13 says, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard? His spots? Answer, no. They can't. It's part of what they are. And sinfulness is a part of what we are as fallen children of Adam. Then why does God do it? What is the the, the root, what is the fountain of this great eternity-changing declaration that God makes? Verse 24 tells us. It says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says it's a gift. The word denotes a free gift, a supernatural gift without payment being made by the one who receives it. Free. And it is a free gift, verse 24 says, by his grace. We're justified by his grace. By God's disposition. Not by anything you do. You can't buy it. You can't buy your way in. You can offer nothing in exchange for it. But grace, and grace, of course, a very important concept in Scripture. Grace is the disposition of God, part of the nature of God, to give us what we don't deserve. In fact, to give us what we have forfeited, what we deserve the opposite of. And to give it purely because he has set his love on us. Paul in Ephesians 2 talks about that. He says, because of the great love with which he loved us, He made us alive together with Christ. It means to get something from God that you don't deserve. Because you don't deserve. I don't deserve. No one deserves to be declared innocent by God. In fact, we deserve the opposite, don't we? We deserve condemnation. We deserve punishment. But we receive justification. Why? Because God is gracious. And he gives it freely. Because that's the way he is. There's no other source. There is no other reason. And that is why we say, not just that we are justified by grace, but that we are justified by grace alone. And that leads us to an important question that we have to answer. And here we get to our fourth topic here, the ground of it. An important question. If you are not, consider this with me for a moment here, if you are not righteous, and if God is just and true, then how in the world can God declare you to be something you are not? Is that not an untruth? Is that not really a lie about you, which God cannot do? It's all fine and good that God may want to graciously declare you righteous. But as Abraham said in Genesis 18, will not the judge of all the earth do rightly? And the answer is he will. He must. If he is not just, he is not God. 
And he is God, so he is just. So what's the basis of this declaration? What ground does God have on which to render this verdict of not guilty? In the face of the fact that you are quite guilty. You are quite sinful. You are quite wicked. You are quite deserving of hell, as am I. Well, look at verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, and here it is, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Continue on. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christian, here is the ground of our justification, the foundation of it. This is how God is able to offer it. How God is able to be, as verse 26 says, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The work of Jesus Christ is what makes it possible for God to declare us righteous when we, in fact, are not righteous. This is the only way that we can have any hope of heaven. Because we are sinners, but he is sinless. We are guilty, he is innocent. We are unholy, he is holy. We live lives filled with unrighteousness, but he lived a life of perfect righteousness. He never sinned. He never failed to do God's will. He always did what was expected of him by the law of God. He never transgressed. And this is so vitally important. It is so crucial to this understanding of justification. We talk sometimes about the things that God can't do. He can't sin. He can't change. He can't deny himself. Here's another one. God can't just say you're justified. Your sins are forgiven. You are now viewed as fulfilling everything if there's no basis for it. That would destroy his justice. Such a declaration has to have a basis in truth if God is to be consistent with his own nature, which, of course, he must be. He must base his forgiveness, his forgiveness, his declaration on something true and something sure and something able to provide the righteousness for those for whom he justifies. And that something is found in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived perfectly. And Jesus suffered the punishment for sin on the cross. But there's still something missing, isn't there? If you think through this. One more critical link that needs to be brought out. Here's the question. How does the work of Christ, Christ is beautiful, Christ is holy. Christ was righteous. He lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life. But how does that make it possible for God to declare me righteous? How does Jesus' perfect life and death help me? Well, here's the link. It is, beloved, because God, because of his love, because of his grace, that he graciously reckons Christ's righteousness as yours. He puts 
Christ's righteousness into your account. The term we use is imputation. It's an accounting term. Christ's righteousness to you. It's in the same way that he takes your sin and gives them to Christ on the cross. And Christ paid for them. On the cross, God reckoned Christ as a sinner. He treated him as a sinner deserves to be treated. In the word of Paul, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. And here in Romans 3, in verse 25, he says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. That's a big old theology word. It's a word that points to Christ's death on the cross as the sacrifice that satisfied God's justice and turned aside his wrath against sinners, that is you and me. A substitution for sinners. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous. When God justifies a sinner, he makes an exchange. A two-way exchange. On the one hand, your sin is accounted to Christ. It was paid for by Christ on the cross in his death. His death removes God's wrath against you. That's what propitiation means. To turn aside God's wrath, your sin reckoned as Christ's and paid for by Christ on the cross as he, as he bore the weight of your sin and as he bore the wrath of God against your sin. But then there's a the second half of that exchange. And that is that God takes all of the merits of Christ, all of his obedience to God's law, all of his good works, which were perfect works, and he credits that obedience to you as if you had performed it. The righteousness that God requires is the righteousness which God provides, that Christ provided. The righteousness that you need in order to be pleasing to God, acceptable to God, God himself gives you by crediting Christ's righteousness to your account. So we see that that your salvation, your standing with God has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with your works. It has nothing to do with your deeds. And it has everything to do with Jesus Christ. He bore your sin. He provided your righteousness. And on the basis of that, God can justly say, you're righteous. You're not guilty. He can pronounce that verdict concerning you that you're not guilty. In fact, not just not guilty, but perfectly righteous. Because in God's eyes of acceptance, there is no pretty good righteous. It's perfect righteousness or it's unrighteousness. And what Christ provided, what God reckons to you, Christian, is perfect righteousness. Because you now stand with the moral perfection of Christ in your account. The Bible also uses the figure elsewhere of us being clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. Your filthy rags replaced by Christ's spotless 
robe, his spotless garment. And every Christian receives that righteousness. Every Christian receives a righteousness that was not attained by them, but which is granted to them by grace alone because of Christ alone. So we've seen the meaning, we've seen the need of it, we've seen the source of it, grace. We've seen the ground of it, Christ's work. Now let's see the outcome of it. The infinite wisdom, the love of God in in this grand plan and the activity of God is seen in the wondrous outcome that it produces, which is this, that the sinner is made right with God while the justice of God is upheld and so God is glorified. That's the result of justification. Yes, you are, are freed from condemnation. You are freed from hell. You are freed from that. But God is glorified, is the end of it all. And it's of the greatest importance, beloved, that in justifying the sinner that God remain God, that he be true to his nature, which he cannot help but be. And it is through this justifying of sinners on the basis of the righteousness of Christ credited, imputed to them, that God accomplishes the greatest of blessings and yet remains truly good, truly God, holy, righteous, and consistently just. And that's true for those who lived before Christ as, as, tr- as much as it is for those who have lived after that. That's what verses 25b and 26 are about. We won't go in, into them. But when it talks about this showing God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, that's the sins of those in the Old Testament, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time, that's just saying that the basis of David's salvation, the basis of Abraham's salvation, is the same as the basis of your salvation. God's grace and the work of Christ. So God doesn't ignore, he cannot ignore the sins of any sinner, New Testament or Old Testament. And so Christ is not only the justifier of sinners, but verse 26 tells us that he, that God, is both just and the justifiers of, well, of whom? The justifiers of whom? How does God, how does such a great blessing, how does the blessing of all blessings come to us? How do we come to it? And that's our final point. And that is the means of receiving it and who receives it. We've discussed why God justifies us. We've discussed why we need to be justified. We've discussed how it is that God can justify sinners and the ground of that justification. It comes by grace alone. It's grounded in Christ alone. And now we see that it's received by faith alone. And of course, that was the battle cry of the Reformation. Sola fide, faith alone. And that's what drove the wedge between the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers. Because the Roman Catholic Church taught and teaches that justification is by faith and works. The reformer said, no, the scripture says it's by faith alone that we receive this. And that's what separates the true gospel of Jesus Christ from a gospel that Paul would call another gospel. 
And this is the critical teaching which still separates Rome from the church of Christ. And this this teaching comes quickly. It comes without question here. It's so clear because in these 11 verses that we read this morning, we see it eight times. In verse 22, in verse 25, in verse 26, in verse 27, in verse 28, in verse 30, twice, in verse 31. Not through works, but by faith alone, believing in Christ. That is how we are justified. That's how we receive justification. Not by your works, not by faith plus works, or by Christ plus anything. By faith alone. We trust Christ and we receive it. A faith, remember from Ephesians chapter 2, that is itself a gift of God, isn't it? We don't even contribute the faith. We don't work up the faith. We don't produce it ourselves. It's a gift. God set it up that way on purpose. Look at verse 27. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? His answer, it is excluded. No boasting. No boasting. Because it's all of God, all of Christ, all of his grace. This is the most important concept that you will ever have to understand. If you falter in this, you are doomed. There is no way to God, there is no way to salvation except this one. This issue will determine your eternal destiny. If you are counting on any amount of good works, of good will, of good deeds, of keeping the law to secure your entrance into heaven, you're missing the gospel. If you intend on escaping the wrath of God and gaining entrance into heaven based on what you do, you will fail. As we've already seen it, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Because that's not how we're justified. It can't be because we can't do it. You are not good enough. No one is. You cannot be acquitted of sin through your works. Not through your piety. Not through your your best works. Not by saints. Not through sacrifices. Not through rituals. Not through enlightenment. But only through your sins being reckoned to Christ and his righteousness being reckoned to you. And that comes not through any of those things in any way to any degree but only through faith alone. Paul said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Again, Paul, in Galatians 2, said, knowing that a man is justified or is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. That's how we receive it. Faith is not a work. Faith is an empty hand, as we say, that receives the gift. And God's even given us the hand. 
Beloved this morning, brothers and sisters, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's the gospel. And it is the only way of attaining salvation. It cannot be compromised. The reformers gave their lives very often for this truth. Let us keep this truth in our hearts, in our minds, in our voices, in our joy as we remember that our salvation is something that comes to us freely by a grace gift from God to us based on what Jesus Christ has done, not on anything else. And every Christian here this morning, let us say to that, amen. Father, we thank you that you and your wisdom have, and you and your love have, have come to a, a way for us by which we might be made right with you through this wonderful gift of justification. And Lord, we pray that for those of us here this morning, for those listening, for those watching who trust in Christ, we pray that we would go on clinging to this, rejoicing in this. Let our minds never falter from this. Let us not succumb to those who would seek to add works or anything else in any way, at any time, at any place. Let us remember that this is the way of salvation. And may we rejoice in the fact that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. For any here this morning or hearing this this morning who have not trusted Christ, who may be counting on something that they have done, something in their upbringing, something in their their lives, something in their good deeds, that they are counting on that to render them right with you, Lord. We pray that these words this morning would um, cause them to reject that and to come simply and humbly in faith to Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name.